Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Welcome to the final episode of season one. Personally, I just want to say a big thank you for listening. And if you get a chance, rate the show or share any feedback you have with me, it'd be much appreciated. And for the last show, we have Yusuf Darwich, the co-founder and CEO of Nosso. Now, I'm pretty sceptical of fintechs, but Nosso are already building something different. Yusuf is focused on helping families to use their money in a smarter way to build both a better world and a better future for their children. Using the Nosso app, families set a goal like buying a first house or paying for school fees, They select a product that best suits them, and then anyone in the family can contribute to that goal. Each time a family member contributes, they can leave a message or a video for the recipients, creating this unique time capsule of special memories for when they're older. All of their investments are ESG, and they offer specifically themed products that are good for the planet, like Carbon Cutter, which invests in climate tech companies. Hey, Yusuf, great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Hey, Greg. Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Yeah, of course. Um, so just a little bit on your background. Um, I saw you studied economics and then pretty much been in the finance kind of sector ever since. Like, I just wondered what initially attracted you to finance and then what's kind of kept you hooked into the fintech sector ever since? Yeah, no, good question. I was actually repeating it back to someone a couple of weeks ago of like what first got me into finance because I'd say like I fell into it rather than anything. Um, as you said, I studied economics, right? So there were, were only a few kind of paths that I was going to go down. But like how I actually ended up landing my first job, it was um, second year at university. And I went to a university where a lot of people were like doing summer internships and things like that. And I was good friends with the, with the guy the year above um, who'd just done a summer internship at one of the banks. And I remember having a chat with him of just like, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to apply. And he literally said, you're good at maths, apply to a bank to do some trading there. And I never heard of trading. I had no idea what it was, um, but ended up sending off a few applications to to some banks for their summer internships. Um, the first one I got, I remember I literally got an interview kind of that week after I sent off the application. As I said, I knew nothing about it. So, you know, they, they certainly found that out pretty quickly. Um, but luckily I did manage to, to end up kind of getting an internship. Um, that led to a full-time job, which I went to straight after uni. Um, and yeah, as you say, I've, I've kind of been doing one type of finance to another since then. So, you know, I started off on the investment banking side and the digital banking side. And I'm now more in the kind of financial advice slash wealth um, tech side. Um, so, yeah, it's been an interesting journey, but yeah, a lot of it in finance. <laughs> and um, to kind of continue that journey and how it's how it's kind of currently, where it's currently got to, um, like what, what kind of sparked the interest um, or focus on like family finance and like families investing in their children's future. Was that like led by personal circumstance? Have you started to have your own children or was it like something else that you start to see in the market? I think a bit of both. Um, so before I started uh, working on this, I was uh, um, at a digital bank called Tide. Um, and so there I kind of got to see 
you know, how you can take an industry that was a little bit further behind, um, you know, where, where it should have been and basically use technology to ad- advance it. Um, and, you know, there was a lot going on in the banking space at the time. Um, and then I kind of moved into the wealth space, but once again, for a, a slightly more traditional provider. Um, so I think that was one thing I started seeing a little bit, in, you know, like in, in my in my role at that wealth manager of like, actually how finances um, and financial advice and financial kind of guidance was 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 served in a more traditional approach in a more traditional manner um, and really the, the things that stuck with me the most was like how much better it was um, in terms of the financial advice that we could give them if the whole family kind of came in together you know if it wasn't just one partner but we're actually helping both partners maybe helping the grandparents as well thinking about how they can transfer money down wealth down etc in the most tax efficient way so that was kind of one thing that just got me interested in kind of family finance and you know um shopping around the market i just realized that actually all the products out there were built for single users managing money on their own you know your pension is your pension your partner's got theirs um isas investment accounts whatever they're all built for you on your own and then your partner or a family member or whatever will have their own even if you have shared goals so that was one thing that kind of really stuck with me um and then yeah in in 2019 so a year before kind of started exploring nosso um and i met my co-founder my wife and i had our first child um and that kind of made it a bit more real where i was like okay you know we've got a daughter now let's start thinking about her future um we're a household that you know all money is basically equal between us um we've got no concept of you know my money and your money it's just our money in general um and we've um despite kind of you know having our own pensions and stuff we, we've we've got this boring you know and pretty nerdy spreadsheet which like we update to keep track of like where we are as a family right so then when we when we had our daughter and started thinking about her future we wanted a way that we could do that together as well and it just fe- felt silly at the time that there was no account that i could open up that my wife could also have access to that she could kind of see how much was in there she could um, make her own contribution she could invite her her family her side of the family to do that as well it felt like everything was just being managed by one person in the household um and and, and yeah so you know i think those two things kind of came together pretty nicely to get me quite interested in this family finance space, especially kind of, you know, our, our, our children's futures. And yeah, since then, you know, I had another child and it's become <laughs> even more complicated, but, but yeah, you know, it's a mixture of uh, a few of those things kind of coming together at the, at the same time. Definitely. And, and to explore the family finance space, like more generally before we talk about Nosso, um, like because, you know, I think every parent, I know I've had it with my two children, like you have children and you want to do the best of them and set up a future for them. But it's actually really hard to know where to go. Like, what, what are some of the traditional options that families currently take and have taken historically when it comes to like savings for their children? Uh, and you kind of touched on some of the challenges already in that last section. But like, yeah, some of the, the associated like frustrations with those routes. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that there's kind of three main types. There's there's more than three types of account, but there's three main ones. Um, junior savings accounts tend to be the most popular. They work a little bit like your or my say, adult savings account, except it's for your kid. And so what that means is it tends to pay a pretty low interest rate, 
but it's easy access. You can put money in whenever you want and you can get money out whenever you want. Um, and because they're the ones that the banks tend to offer, they tend to be kind of the most common, the most popular, the most well-known about. Um, you then get junior ISAs, which is um, kind of a, a government um, tax incentivized way to put money aside for your kids. And there's two types of those, there's stocks and shares ISAs and there's cash ISAs. I guess the main difference between that and the junior savings account is that the money is locked up until the kid turns 18. So it really is designed by the government as a way to kind of put aside long-term money for for, um, for, for your children's futures. Um, then there's a few other ones. I'd say the third one that popped up quite a lot when we were doing our user research at the beginning is actually premium bonds. Um, and it tended to be kind of grandparents um, gifting premium bonds to grandchildren when they were first born. Um, and in case anyone kind of doesn't know how premium bonds work, they're, they're like prize um savings account kind of so you put money in and on average you're going to get a really low interest rate but because it's done in a prize manner i.e you know every month there's a draw and you could win bigger prizes um every now and then you do hear a story of someone you know who, whose kid won millions um from from prize bonds um from from premium bonds sorry um so they were like the three most popular types of accounts. Um, each of them have kind of their own unique use case and their own, you know, pros and cons. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that kind of that I feel super passionately about is actually, you know, your kids, your kids' future is a long time away. Yet the vast majority of the products I've just mentioned, so junior savings accounts, junior cash ices and premium bonds, the majority of them are interest-based and pay a really low rate of interest, which actually gets eroded away by inflation, you know, uh, over time, right? Um, and that was one of the things that I kind of kept hearing over and over again, how all like these parents who might have invested for themselves in some format or another, just kind of kept defaulting to these savings options and basically leaving a lot of money on the table when it comes to their kids their kids futures because they're not you know making the money grow as, as, as well as it can be if they invested it yeah makes makes a lot of sense and yeah i'm starting to dig a bit more into kind of like finance and how how all these things work and it starts to make me realize like just putting some money in a savings account or just sat in my bank account is not actually the money's not working for you when inflation's increasing the pound's getting weaker that you, you're kind of losing money actually just having it sat there wasn't it like working for you smartly and you always you always kind of learn that the hard way like i you know i was responsible for those kind of mistakes as well early on in my career where like if i think back to like probably the biggest financial mistake i made it's yeah when i first started working and having a bit of disposable income my money just sat in my bank account and you know it took me a little while to kind of realize actually it could be doing something different and you know in those years the stock market was going like only in one direction and that was up as well so you know I, in hindsight i would have loved to have been investing earlier but ultimately like you know, most people eventually learn that. I think one of our jobs is to try to teach people that important life lesson kind of as early as possible, um, you know, be that whether they're parents or in due time, the children, um, you know, it's just kind of our job to encourage more people to to kind of, you know, invest, albeit with the risks associated with it. And and when we kind of look at the root cause, so you mentioned kind of what the, the common options are and, and some of the, the challenges that come with those Um do you think, well, you know, putting yourself in the parents' shoes, which we both are, is, is the issue like just lack of like financial education and the UK is actually really poor for like financial literacy and understanding what your options are and, and how to use money? Is it like convenience? It's just that I bank with this bank and I'm going to just open a savings account for my child there. What do you think some of the bigger issues and reasons for so? 
Uh, I, I think both the ones you mentioned are accurate in some format, right? Like if we take the financial education one first, um, yes, I do think as a, as a country, um, we aren't um, that well educated when it comes to our finances. Um, and I think you can see that in, in, in kind of some of the stats, um, you know, so if you compare the parents saving versus investing, you know, a lot more save versus an invest. Um, and it's because like investing has been, um, I guess like we, we get taught growing up to not take risks when really maybe we should talk, get taught to think about the risks that we take and basically quantify them. And so as soon as you start hearing that investing carries risk, your money could go down, et cetera, straight away, everything that you've been taught kind of tells you, no, like stay away from this risk is bad. Um, when really, you know, you're an entrepreneur, right? You, you eventually get to a position where you realize actually some risk is necessary to, to, to get ahead in life. And I think, unfortunately, we don't get taught enough of that um, uh, early on. Um, but, by, you know, for me, I think one of the most interesting and like kind of um, f funny things, I guess, is that despite, you know, so much of the UK population being scared of investing, those exact same people probably all invest every month through their pension without even knowing about it. Um, and so it does come down to education once again, because you talk to anyone about investing, like, no, I'd never invest. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Um, okay, do you have a pension? Yes. Okay, well, <laughs> chances are you've been investing in exactly the same thing there, right? Um and yeah, so for me, that's like an education piece um, and only through better education and through kind of better initiatives as well from kind of, you know, the government, the FCA, et cetera, will, will, um, will people become more comfortable investing. So that's kind of the investing piece. But I do think you, you, you raise a really good point around kind of like ease, um, accessibility and kind of what you're used to. So yes, the big banks do tend to offer savings products versus investing products. So that is something that naturally you've gone with them. They're the easy option. You're you'll continue to go with them. But I think another one and an area that we're looking at quite closely is um, the kind of tax incentivized scheme to invest for your children or to save for your children even. So the, the junior ISA um, is pretty rigid in the way it works. So it locks the money up until the kid turns 18. And at the age of 18, your kid gets kind of full access to that money. It goes straight away in their name. And I know kind of, you know, as a parent, both of those two things can worry you a little bit, right? Like on one hand, you think, okay, but like teenage kids are expensive. They're going to have sports. They're going to have music, um, maybe even school fees that, that you've got to pay for, right? Am I really comfortable locking all that money up until they turn 18? Um, and on the other piece, it's like, okay, and when they turn 18, you know, I remember what I was like as an 18-year-old, and I'd like to think I was one of the, the more kind of sensible ones. Um, so, you know, there is a little bit of doubt in people's minds. And I think like where that's the only real product available to you, it does make it a little bit um, of a tough decision. It's like, okay, should I actually, you know, save or invest in my kids' futures when, when, when that's the only product available to me? And, you know, so that's why, like, for us, for example, you know, there are other products, but the majority of people don't know about them. You know, you hear the word trust and straight away you associate it with someone who's super wealthy, but actually they can work for, for you know, the the kind of everyday family i guess and they can give you a little bit more flexibility and control over your kids savings your kids investments and how and when you can use them um so that's kind of the other part it's you know a bit of financial education but it's also accessibility and you know how the products are structured in the first place that's that makes parents a little bit um um uncomfortable maybe to take that first step yeah makes a lot of sense um and so let's talk about Nosso. so could you for the listeners just give an overview of what Nosso is what you do 
The, the probably simplest way to put it is Nosso is, a, is an app that helps families come together to invest for children or grandchildren's futures. Um, and I say families there because I think that's one of the unique things about our product is the way we bring the whole family together. So as I mentioned at the beginning, this isn't just an account for one parent open to invest for their for their child. The partner can have access as well. Grandparents, godparents, aunts and uncles, they can all invest as well. Um, it all gets invested to a shared goal. It's all done in as tax efficient a way as, as possible, really, depending on kind of what it is that the parent needs. And I think, you know, one of the, you know, one of the softer features that, that we love is basically the ability to leave messages, pictures um, uh, with every contribution as well. So, you know, it really does end up being this kind of family money slash uh, memory capsule that the kid can get when they're 18. So you're not just giving them a check of a check of money and saying, you know, enjoy yourself when you're older. It's actually and like here are all the memories of how the family came together to to invest it for you. Yeah, no, and, and that's one of the things I was going to talk about later on. But I love the like this like not just a moment, this whole like special family experience you've created with each kind of time someone's putting something in. There's like a note or there's something that goes with it. Uh, and you know, it might be stuff that actually when the, the child receives, like actually gets the account and turn 18, if it's one of those products, some of those family members may not be with them anymore. It'd be like a really nice thing to look back on and mm-hmm. just remember they actually did that for me. And like all these different people have had an input into my future. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be clear, I, I was actually talking about the, the like second part, like the, the more special moments and, the, and the, those little oh, bits, cool. um, which I, I think is like super unique and special. Um, to take you back yeah. to the, to like the early, early days, um, like what was the initial concept? How do you go about validating that? And, and has it, does it, was it quite close to what NOSO is today or has it changed quite a bit? I think it's constantly changing. I think like the, the, there was there was a couple of things that have that have stuck true, right? And the, the multi-user family finance bit has kind of been consistent throughout. But what that actually meant and, that, what, and what that looked like has kind of varied a bit. So I remember at the very early stages when my co-founder Shani and I were, were um we're kind of exploring the, the space. We didn't know that the first product we'd launch would be, you know, uh, investing for children, right? We were like, how do we bring two people together to kind of manage their long-term wealth together, right? So think a joint bank, a joint account, except for investments rather than than kind of day-to-day banking. Um, so that's kind of where we started. And I think that the, the, the thing that led us down the kind of, apart from our personal experiences at the time, we just spoke to a bunch of different kind of family members, parents, et cetera. And we just kind of kept landing to the same bit, which is actually like the thing that's most on my mind at the moment is my child. It's not me. It's my child. What do I do for them? What do I do for them? How do I do it? Um, and, you know, I think then if I think about how the product has evolved over time, um, I think we're learning every day. But, you know, one of the things that we continue learning is actually like, who is the stakeholder in this? Like, is it is it the parent or is it the grandparent? You know, and actually this is quite an interesting thing where like, you know, you do assume and the way majority wants to get a financial services product, including ours, uh, are built is like the parent is the one that makes that first move. They open up the investment account. They're the ones in control. But actually when you, when you speak to a lot of the customers, you realize they're like, why did you do this? Well, it's because when the kid was born, grandparent gifted, you know, a few hundred quid, a thousand pounds, whatever it is. Right. Um, and like a lot of it does tend to start with this person in my life, be it a grandparent or a godparent or whatever it is, basically someone who's maybe a little bit more financially um, literate than you, but also has a bit more time on their hand because they're not busy, you know, parenting a newborn, basically. They were the ones who suggested, they were the ones who gave a bit of cash. And then I wanted to think about what to do with that cash, right? And so 
that's kind of the way the products evolved over over the last you know six to twelve months or so. Um, it, it, you know, it has started thinking a lot more of like how can we bring that 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 other party, that external family member, how can we get them more involved? Um, so if I kind of compare where the product was when we launched it, where which was you know just I send them a link, they make a payment. That's it. You know, every time I need to send them a link, they need to make a payment to kind of by Christmas time. It'll be there will be a login just for those um, grandparents, external contributors, call them what you, what you will, where they'll be able to see all of their gifting to, across all of their grandchildren in one place. They'll be able to set up, you know, birthday only or birthday and Christmas direct debits. They'll be able to, as well as the messages and pictures, do videos do kind of like virtual cards as well. So like really like a, a, you know, a platform for them to manage their kind of whole contributions, their whole gifting and, you know, effectively become more and more involved in the journey themselves. Um, so that's probably the way the product, like, I wouldn't say we've ever like done a big pivot, but that's the way the products evolved over the last kind of six or 12 months as, as we've learned more and more from our customers. Yeah, love it. And um, in terms of exploring just the like user journey a bit more, so um, you know, I'm a parent. I sign up, uh, create an account. Like, you know, how, how easy is it? How long does it take to actually you know set myself up and then find out like find a product that I think suits suits my needs properly? And is it is it I assume yeah. pretty easy? Yeah, it's all app based. It's all you know digital. It's all pretty easy. Um, basically, if you don't drop off at anywhere in the funnel, i.e., if you don't think about okay, like um, is this you know really right for me, etc., then you can probably uh, go through in about five to ten minutes. Um, there's a few areas that you know do require a little bit more hand holding. So, for example, like picking the product in the first place. You know, do I want to invest in the junior ISA? Do I want to open up a trust? Or do you want to, do I want to continue investing in my own name through a general investment account or whatever? That's an area where, you know, we've built a little bit more of a questionnaire kind of flow to help you make the right decision to basically help you select a product that's, that's, um, that's, uh, that's appropriate for, for what it is that you're trying to, to achieve with it. Um, and so that can take a little bit longer if you're, if you're a little bit less sure. Same with the investments. We've tried to make that as easy as possible, you know, for different risk profiles, um, to kind of, you know, leave it to you and say, okay, how much risk do you want to take? So, you know, we spoke earlier about the importance of risk, but ultimately it's your decision how much. So we try to make that as easy as possible. And, you know, it's not one of those products where you have to pick the specific stocks and shares and ETFs um, that, that you want to buy. Um, but at the same time, once again, if you're someone who might need a little bit more time, a little bit more handholding, reading a few more things, then that part might take you a little bit longer. But yeah, you know, from the moment you've downloaded the app, if you wanted to, you could have, you know, the first chunk of money in, set aside for your kids futures in probably as little as five minutes nice and do you find the parents are led more by um the like goal like the outcome so like yeah if it is like i, I want to set some out which will contribute to a, a first house for my child or do you find it's more like people look at like risk tolerance and, and that will lead what their decision is um i wouldn't say it's risk tolerance i'd say it's um you know, I'd, I'd say kind of just over half are probably like goals based. So they're actually put a specific goal in mind and that's kind of what they're working towards. Um, but, you know, there is still a, a large portion that's just like, I want to set money aside. I don't, I don't like, I, I don't know what for we'll figure it out in the future. Um, but yeah, I do want to set money aside for them. And they tend to be a lot more product focused. So it's like, I've already decided it should be a junior ISA, it should be a trust, it should be a GIA, et cetera. Um, so they're the two types of users we see. Some who, you know, don't really care about the goal. They're just like, let me open up a junior ISA as easy as possible. Others, which are a bit more like, 
it's school fees or it's uni fees or it's that first home help me figure out how much i need to set aside to actually you know pay for a um 10 deposit in a house in the future or whatever it is right or their school fees their uni fees their first car um they're kind of the popular goals that we see yeah yeah i can imagine it kind of probably comes back to our point earlier around kind of financial literacy like if you if you know what you're doing and you're probably quite clear on which products suit you and if you're not then you're probably more goal-based so <laughs> yeah <laughs> makes sense yeah 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 no exactly exactly and, and that was one of the big learnings that we had at the beginning to be honest um yeah I, I remember our first version um didn't allow um basically we took everyone through that hand-holding process of you know how to find which product is right for you and we did hear a lot of feedback from those that were a little bit more financially savvy um of like i already know what i want like you've you've made me spend two or three minutes doing something which i don't need to do because i could have just pressed one button um and you know it's, it's, it's these learnings which are always quite interesting of course, of course. And then, um, yeah, I was looking at your investments page and, and you have themes like Carbon Cutter, Water World, Health Heroes. Um, I guess, so two questions. So one, can you just explain like what those are and why those are important? And then second question is, um, I guess um, when you do talk about like stocks and shares, there's like a line, I guess, of like ethicalness of, of some of the portfolios and, and like what people can invest in and what you think's not so, uh, you know, um, friendly to invest in, like, yeah, be good to hear your thoughts on on yeah what where you've gone for some of those investment like options and secondly yeah, yeah. where you draw the line. Yeah, yeah. So in in general, all investments on our platform are what's known as ESG investments, which are basically um, they they try to do good for the world, right? And you know, I'm not going to sit here and say like our ESG investments are as kind of good as they can be because th there is a universe um, and I know different people have kind of different opinions on this. Um, but I guess the way our, our portfolios, are, our ESG investments are, are um, um, selected, they're selected by a fund manager called BlackRock or Vanguard. And they basically try to strip away the companies that are like doing bad in the world. Um, so it's less selecting specific companies really doing good, but it's more stripping away companies that, that you know, are obviously doing bad in the world. Um, reason being, we, you know, if you're investing for your kids' future, you basically want it to be a, a world that exists for them. There's no point in them having money if the world is in a very bad position for them, right? So I think that's the first part. That's all our investments. And as you mentioned, we do also have these concepts of themes, um, the, the three ones you mentioned, um, Carbon Cutters, Health Heroes, and Water World, um, which are effectively um, allowing our customers to select, um, to put a little bit more money just purely in companies that are trying to um, do something in that specific space. So um, Waterworld, for example, could be companies that are trying to make water more sustainable across the world and you know, access to clean water basically improved across the world. Um, and so the way we offer, the, the reason we offer them is once again, if you as a parent um, know that your child might be more interested in one or the other, or maybe you are more interested in one of those or the other, we just give you the option of having a little bit more um, ability to tailor your portfolio for, for you and your child. Um, uh, we don't allow you to kind of put more than 10% in there. And the reason is um, ultimately we, we, we always want to wear our like best financial hat on and we don't want you to take too much risks uh, and basically put all your eggs in one basket. You know, if you put 100% of your money in, in Waterworld, yes, that might do really well, but it's also you know, a little bit more risky than than we would suggest. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the way we've structured it. So all the investments are ESG, but then you're allowed to put 10% of your money also into a theme. And over time, we want to build out those themes. Um, and I think that's something that's kind of super important for, for, for me, for us as a business. It's like, how do we 
we build more and more engaging themes that allow people to do something with the money that they believe is, is, is right for the world, right? So, you know, to give you an example, my, you know, for my daughter, for example, maybe I want to invest uh, some of my money in companies that are just led by female CEOs. Um, you know, we would love to, and something that we're exploring, put together a theme just for that. Um, or, you know, there's a few other things as well, which we know certain people have very strong beliefs, allow them to put some of their money into, into themes that match their beliefs and match the world that they want their children growing up in. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, no, I, I can, I take the need for it. Like, uh, you know, the way I see consumer behavior going is um, people want to be doing more good if that's through their work or through where they're investing, whatever it might be. So giving them uh, yeah, that ability, I understand see why, why that would make sense. And um, earlier this year, you rebranded. Um, rebranded from from happy to not so, and obviously with any kind of consumer products, branding is super super key. Um, can you talk through like decision to change branding um, and, and like the process of doing so? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I'll, I'll be honest. Um, we got a letter through the mailbox saying, "Hey, you know, we're using the trademark Happy," um, and this was pretty early in our journey. It was before we'd actually fully launched, um, so we were happy to kind of make that you know, excuse the pun, um, to, to, to make that change. Um, we, we then kind of started exploring like, okay, let's actually spend a little bit of time thinking about our brand and, you know, what we want to build. Um, and ultimately landed on Nosso for a few different reasons. The main one being Nosso is actually a Portuguese word for like hours. So not hours in the day, but I mean, hours as in mine and yours. Um, and the reason being is like, if you think back to like, what are we trying to do? We're trying to change this concept of money, of wealth from my money, my wealth, my goals to our money, our wealth, our goals. Um, just because we believe if you think about finance as a family, you will make better financial decisions for you, your partners and your children in, in due course. So that was the thing that really kind of like stuck with us the most and made us and choose not so it was just a you know very kind of nice word that super easily summarized what we're actually trying to do um so yeah that's that's kind of why we did it um it was a very stressful time because we you know we did it with our launch as well and we wanted to to launch in the last tax so just towards the end of the last tax year before the tax year end um so yeah very stressful time getting everything ready um but yeah, it's, you know, it's been great and it's given us a base to work with as well. So, you know, I assume a lot of startups, um, their first brand is one that kind of the two founders who have zero experience in branding, but also have, have kind of not really spoken to the customers about, you know, what does this name mean to you? What does this brand mean to you? They just come up with a logo and a name kind of by themselves. I think, you know, it was a blessing in disguise to have the opportunity to really think about you know, who we are, what we're doing, why we're doing it and how our customers perceive us, um, you know, when, when, when coming up with our brand. Definitely. Yeah. And, and like with, with the two kind of companies that I'm involved in, like, yeah, if I look back at the branding, you know, one, just the, the market we were, we were kind of pitching to and working in, it was completely misaligned with how the, the branding came across. And the second business is more like testing out names and meanings with people we had too early on. 
And it's really interesting actually how people view things and look at them and the feedback they give actually. We were pretty set on one, which was uh, the name Ikigai, which is like Japanese for like find your purpose through a number of means. Um, but loads of people are like, how do you spell that? How do you pronounce that? I wouldn't remember that if I heard it. And then you're like, actually, yeah, you, you, all these little considerations come into it. So um, cool. And a and, uh, final bit on, on Nosso, um, you know, in, in next, like looking ahead now, next year, like year or two, like what, what are some of the big things you're excited about that are in the roadmap? Yes, I think like Christmas, of course, with the whole gifting thing is a very exciting time for us. Um, As I'm kind of um, touched upon earlier, we're working on some pretty cool things. Um, The thing I'm most excited about at the moment is, you know, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but traditionally um, and in general, kind of like kids investments and savings do need to be started by the parents who then, you know, invite others to contribute. We're working on a way to kind of turn that around and actually, you know, come Christmas, for example, I could gift any child so i could give your children you know not so investments for example and so to to save you know newborn parents the hassle of you know having to do all this research a grandparent for example could come onto our platform and just send the investments directly themselves um so that's one of the things that we're kind of most excited about not just because like um it's pretty unique in the space but you know i think the other thing as well is like actually like for good for us doesn't just mean like our ESG investments, for example. Actually, it means cutting out all the plastic crap that as parents just like lives in our house and that we get more and more of every year. So, you know, I don't want to be a Scrooge here and say no more Christmas presents, but ultimately if we can kind of do our part to um, to um, reduce the amount of waste that's, that's kind of coming up over Christmas and actually put that money to something a little bit more long-term, a little bit more sustainable for our kids' futures, you know, we would love to. So that's, you know, one of the things that we're quite excited about, you know, um, coming on. Um, and I think, you know, looking into next year as well, you know, I, I touched upon this, but um, I think our, our product is going to become much more, you know, equal in terms of who's its customer the parents or the external so there's so many really complex like gifting rules and allowances when it comes to how to give your money and how much you can and can't give um and ultimately what we're trying to do is just make that whole thing a lot easier and a lot more accessible so while today the majority of our kind of education content has focused on the parent i think we're going to build a lot more tools and focus a lot more as well on the those gifting you know have you used up your gifting allowance how could you gift in a different way that might actually make it a little bit more tax efficient from an inheritance tax point of view should you pass away all of these things that the majority of people don't really think about until it's too late we want to kind of start helping them out with you know while we can yeah. 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 Uh, and the, you know, the Christmas gifting definitely strikes a chord with me. Like I know I've had those conversations with my partner about like, we don't need any more toys. Um, you know, and like, you know, a family members being like, what would actually add the most value? And you're like, well, actually, yeah, it would be actually putting something towards the savings or, um, their future as opposed to like another plastic toy in a house, which we just don't need. And it's tough because the, the kids love those plastic toys, right? And that's why I say, like, you know, I know my daughter would kill me if I said no Christmas presents this year, right? Um, but it's about finding the balance, in my opinion. It's about yeah. not, like, overindulging on stuff that will literally get thrown away um, because ultimately when they're older, they're not going to thank you for that little doll that you got them. They might thank you for the memories of that doll brought, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, but actually, you know, if you can give them a help, uh, head start and get them on the property ladder, that's something that they're they're going to be super thankful for um but yeah i think it's you know i think it's about the right balance 
hundred percent. Um, so next section is just chatting to you a little bit about your more, your personal journey as a founder. So I, I know you've, you've worked in startups, um, quite a few, like a few different startups. You spent three years at Tide, like high growth fintech as a senior member of that team. Um, my question is like, what, what have you found to be the biggest difference between being a senior member in a high growth startup versus being a founder? Um, yeah, it's ultimately as a founder, the final decision rests with you. And I think you, I definitely underappreciated that at Tide. So if, if George, the founder of Tide is listening, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I'll admit, <laughs> I think I underappreciated how difficult the job was as founder, because like you think of yourself as an early employee, you think of yourself as like, you know, you are working bloody hard, right? You, you know, you are giving it your all, you're working super long hours, you're putting in all the effort, but ultimately you can't sleep at night because the final decision doesn't rest with you. The final decision of, you know, whether to build this, whether to hire this person or whether to get rid of this person or whatever, like ultimately that doesn't sit with you. And so it's a little bit easier to just switch off and go to sleep. I think that's the hardest thing as, as being a founder. It's like every decision basically ultimately comes back up to you. So, you know, if someone does something, um, that's not their fault. That's your fault. If something, if someone does something wrong, yeah. right? Like that's your fault for not putting in the, the 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 things in place or whatever it is, right? And I think that's the the hardest thing. It's just like ultimately having to like, how do you create the the headspace to to allow you to live and to think about other things when every single thing of work just falls back on, onto you? Um, so yeah, that's the like biggest difference i think between being a you know early team member and, and being the founder um yeah which i didn't appreciate until until i started Nosso. a really good point um and, and to follow on from that like how have you learned to manage that like i, I guess you're having a bigger strain your your mental health you're trying to make sure that you still have time for family other stuff it doesn't flow into that too much like what have you found worked for you to try and yeah make sure you deal with that the best way you can Things tough. Um, a supporting wife has certainly helped a lot um, because you know where, where I've been unable to pick up the 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 load in some kind of parts of our lives, she's always kind of stood up um, and you know helped out in that side. So I think that helps a lot. Um, I think it's you know I'm constantly learning how to be a little bit more efficient with my time, prioritize better, work smarter. Um, you know I think. Previously, I'd kind of, you know, especially in investment banking, I'd come from a world where everything is top priority. Everything needs to be done for yesterday. Um, and I think I'm constantly kind of learning and evolving and I guess trying to become a little bit smarter with my time um, and just with my priorities. Um, and I think the other thing as well is, um, which has helped is to to kind of know that you can't do everything as well, be it everything at work or everything at life. Like ultimately when you're a founder of a business, when you're a parent as well, um, you know, when you're a husband as well, there are so many different, um, things that, that kind of need your attention and something has got to give. And I think it's like, you know, one of the things that's helped me the most is just accepting that, you know, for this period of time, I might not be as present in my friends' lives, for example, but you know what, that that's fine because I've chosen to be more present in my family's lives and I've chosen to be more present in my work and know that that will change over the next few years. And I think that's something that's a little bit hard at the beginning where it's just like, you, you know, you expect, you want the, the business to just fall into place when everything else is running at the same speed. And that's just impossible. You can't keep doing everything that you were doing previously, but start a business as well. 
um, unless you're one of those LinkedIn influencers who somehow manages to, to make it all work. <laughs> wake up at 4 a.m. one of those, but unfortunately I'm not. Yeah, exactly. I only wake up at 4 when my daughter is just like crying and screaming and yeah, I'm certainly not in the mood to, to go for a gym class at that time. No, no yoga or meditation at 4 a.m. in the morning for me either. Um, the, you know, everyone has a different journey into um being an entrepreneur, being a founder, um, obviously you'd worked in startups, you probably knew what you're getting yourself into to an extent, but you, um, you joined the EF cohort. Um, I just wanted to see if you could explain like what that actually is and, and like the benefits of, of doing that before just going straight into founding a company. Yes, yeah, so EF's a really in, uh, EF Entrepreneur First is a really interesting concept for people that haven't heard of it. Um, they basically take you know a bunch of people. I think there was about a hundred in in our cohort. Um, put them all into a room and say, find your co-founder and start a business. Um, and like it has been referred to as a little bit like Love Island for, for <laughs> co-founders um, because it is intense. Like you are working with a few different people and you are trying to find that that right fit for you. Um, you know, and I think I was fortunate to, to meet Shawnee on, on that program and, you know, we click straight away and you know um yeah it was it, you know it was um it was quite fortunate um in the end but yeah ultimately yeah as i said like ef it, it's a great chance to basically um learn how you work with other people and meet other people who are looking for the same thing in life as you are so when you're starting a business if you choose to start it with a co-founder you've obviously got your group of friends and your network um but then within those not everyone is you know looking to, to start a company at the same time as you not everyone has got um the same kind of risk risk threshold interests as you um and so it basically means that there's just maybe even like just a couple of people at tops from your network that are interested in starting a business in the same space as you and i think you'd be lucky to find a couple if i'm being honest um so then your other options are basically to just find a randomer um which is similar to what EF is, except EF gives you a process to find that randomer, right? They allow you to work with each other on little projects and like um, no strings attached kind of method to basically learn as quickly as possible. Can I work with this person? Are we aligned in terms of A, the business we want to create, but B, how we want to create that? And you go through like, you know, one of the things they really encourage on that program is actually going through breakups. Um, they celebrate the breakups. Why? Because you've kind of learned, you know, you've learned actually in my co-founder, I don't want to work with this type of person. I want to work with that um so yeah i think that's one of the great things about entrepreneur first is you know it allows you to kind of find that co-founder in a more um um controlled environment but also it allows you to kind of test a bunch of different working relationships before you find the one that that, that suits you the most um so yeah I'm, I'm super glad i did it um if i think back to like why did i do it in the first place i think it's like i said you know i, I knew i wanted a co-founder to to basically start a business with i think it's so hard to start a business let alone if you started on your own, you know, everything will just rest with you, your bottle up emotions. You can't really talk to your team about it. Just difficult. So I knew I wanted a co-founder. Um, and, um, yeah, entrepreneur first is, you know, you, you meet some great people there and, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to yeah, meet some great people and ultimately meet my co-founder as well. Yeah. And, and do you go into it out of interest with a view of like, I'm looking for a co-founder of this skill set, So I'm looking for like a technical co-founder or are you going more like, I want to work in this problem space. I have a rough idea. I want to find someone that's aligned. I, I guess a bit of both, but if you had to pick one over the other, what do you think you're going? Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
when you put it that way, and if you told me I have to pick one over the other, I would say someone who's aligned in the space that we want to work in. I think like ultimately got fortunate to find a technical co-founder who was aligned in that as well. Um, but, you know, I think I've seen a few other teams where, um, you know, they found a technical co-founder, but ultimately a year down the line, they realized that they weren't interested in the space and they stopped working on it. They broke up as a team after they'd raised money or whatever, right? Um, so if you have to pick between the two, I would say always pick someone who's more passionate about what it is that, that you're doing because that's what a co-founder should be. An employee can be, you know, someone who can code really well, et cetera. But as I mentioned, you know, in Shawnee, my co-founder, I found someone who was super passionate about the kind of like money management space, um, but also, you know, pretty damn good when it comes to building tech as well um so yeah yeah that's a great point like if you're looking for a certain skill set you can always hire for that as an employee versus like that genuine passion and, and like burning desire to work on a problem um cool um final I'm sure it's different if you um sorry i was just gonna say i'm sure it's different if you um if you're like if, if in your mind you're building a really deeply technical problem where only a specific skill set can actually build that, um, I'm not going to lie and say we are, but like imagine if you were, I don't know, um, nowadays there's a lot of focus on like, um, uh, like fake meat, for example, or, you know, things like that, where actually it's a specific skill set that's going to be able to do that, then sure, maybe you should find a co-founder. Well, then, yeah, you probably should find a co-founder with that specific skill set if you can't do it yourself. Um, but, yeah, in general, um, you know, I think for a software business like ours, I think it's the passion and motivation which is going to keep you going. Um, and um, when it comes to, like, building a scalable business like you like, yeah you worked in different startups i'm sure you've seen some really good stuff some stuff that hasn't worked so well like for you now being a founder like what have you found has been really important you focused on and put into place to make sure that like what you're building from a culture perspective is scalable and not so yeah i think that's a good question um i think there's there's a couple of things firstly it's identifying the right people in the first place i think you know if you get that wrong it makes your job 10 times harder. Um, and then the second thing is putting a process, I guess, in place to empower those people to, to do their job, right? Because there's no point hiring great people if then you're just going to tell them what to do. Um, so I think they're the two things that we, and I'm not going to say we, we we nail it every time, for sure, we don't. Um, but they're two of the things that we focus most strongly on. It's like in the, in the hiring process, how do we make sure we're hiring the right person for the business at this stage? And then the second thing is when we brought them in, how do we kind of give them the freedom as quickly as possible to, you know, own things, make their own mistakes, um, and obviously make their own great decisions as well. Um, so yeah, they're, they're two things that are most important for us in our culture. Got it. And do you find like, um, I guess something with Nosso, like we talked about, like it's, it's really purpose driven, like you're helping parents build a future for their child. Do you feel there's a, an added level of difficulty or difference there versus maybe working at a more general fintech? Well, I think our product is quite niche, um, for sure. So I think you've got to, like, the people we've hired have either felt it themselves or have understood it because maybe they've come from a slightly more financial background where they've understood the need for this. Um, so yes, I think we do have, like, it is a little bit harder when you're, when you're building a slightly niche product. Um, because in general, like, you know, I think if I was ever searching for a job, I want to work for a job where I can use the product, right? And naturally, if your product is only really, used by parents or grandparents 
or whatever, then you know you're basically a, a portion of the of the of the workforce aren't going to feel the problem or aren't going to relate to the problem as as close as you do. Having said that, you know I think some of our you know early employees and some of our best employees don't have any kids, right? And they feel it, they understand the importance of it. Um, but in most cases, you know maybe they've got a niece or a nephew that they love basically as much as you know as much as they would a kid, right? So they get it, they get the gifting piece a lot. Um, but yeah, you know I think the more niche you go, the more um, um, the harder it gets. Um, but on the flip side, we also get some, you know, really interesting people reach out who are normally parents who are just like, yes, I felt this. I want, you know, I, I, I want to come work for you. Um, and yeah, like, uh, that's always nice to see as well. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Uh, and, and to, to carry on that theme around kind of like hiring, um, you know, especially if we, if we focus more like early stages, like definitely pre-seed, sometimes even so still like seed stage, funds are limited you have to do the best you can with what you have available and i guess there's then trade-offs when it comes to hiring like what are your kind of principles like do you focus on like really experienced people that you think will be like accelerators for the business are you focusing on like maybe more up-and-comers like high potential employees that haven't necessarily done this before um yeah what's your kind of view on best people to hire early stage i think like you know best is such a um tricky thing to answer. I'll say what was best for us, right? Given the constraints we we had, um, we focused more on up and comers, if I'm if I'm being honest. Um, two reasons. One, ultimately, like, you know, it's, it's very hard with a pre-seed kind of raise to afford to pay the salaries that some roles in London are kind of demanding at the moment. And second, because I think I've um I've benefited from you know, this might sound a bit a bit arrogant, but like, you know, when I joined Tide, the founder of Tide did take a chance on me, right? I didn't have that experience on my CV to say I've been there and done that. And, you know, hopefully he doesn't regret that decision. And I've kind of, you know, seen what people with the right mindset at the right stage of their career can do to, um, to you know, turbocharge um, the company, for example. You know, if I think back to the entire product team at Tide, um, none of them probably had more than four years experience when they joined. And now they're all like heads of products, VPs of products, like head of strategy, whatever it is, uh, some of the top startups in the UK. Um, and so that's kind of the uh, philosophy we're adopting here. You know, we look for potential as much, if not more than experience. It's like, do we really see this person growing into into a leader? And you don't always get it right because it's a it's a much harder thing when you're trying to kind of look ahead. Um, but yeah, there's you know certainly some some people in the team now who are just incredible. You know, and on 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 paper, um, you you wouldn't have expected to you know for them to do the jobs that they're doing this early on in their career. But ultimately, they're just super passionate and super hungry, and they've just picked it up really well and just you know running with with their own things and for sure will be you know leaders of this business as as we scale definitely yeah and, and i think that's a great thing about startups is it gives um opportunities to people that they probably wouldn't get out anywhere else um and you know sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and i've seen both companies hire for experienced people and it, it works for them and also do what you're doing which works just as well um i wonder do you i mean would you mind sharing some of your secrets like in terms of when you like how you help identify those high potential people like i know it's not a perfect science but what are some things that you do or look out for um i think it's like i always try to understand why they've made certain career decisions to date um and i think for me like hunger is one of the most important things because like ultimately um the majority like i've i I guess like I, i just believe that the majority of people um 
who you'll be interviewing, who basically get it to interview stage, will be roughly the same in terms of intelligence or whatever. But those who excel will be those that are most passionate about the role, most passionate about their career as well. So I always try to understand from them, like actually, why have they made certain decisions? You know, this last um, this last job that you left or this last job that you took, why why did you do it? Um, and I think from that you get to pick up a sense of actually like. Do they? Th- how do they view this role? You know, do they view it more as um, um, just you know two years, or do they view it as actually this is my chance to really get ahead in life to do X, Y, and Z? Um, ultimately, if they've ever been hired by someone they used to work for in the past, that's also a huge plus because it means like their their managers love them, and you know, having been a manager or being a manager, um, you kind of know the people that you're going to try to take from one place to another so if if a manager has hired rehired them previously it's normally a really good sign as well um and then we we actually set quite a difficult case study um quite a time consuming one and i think that becomes a good way of filtering out people who just aren't interested we've had some people who like you know throughout the interview process we were like yeah that you know they're really good um attitude seems right but it's very easy to paint that you've got the right attitude and then you can send someone a case study and they look at it and they'll be like, oh, I can't be bothered to do that work. Um, and fine, I'm sure you'll get another job elsewhere, but actually the type of people that we want at this stage of the company aren't people who who, who say, no, I can't be bothered to do that. It's people who like are excited by that. Um, and yeah, we've had some great kind of case studies where you can just tell like this person really wants this job um and people are going to do better at work if if they're super um excited about it and i know like nowadays not everybody kind of agrees with that philosophy like you know um but ultimately i'm a little bit old school when it comes to my hiring practices and and kind of you know what, what, what i look for i think yeah no it's a really good points and you need to do what works for you and and yeah um so Obviously, you've got loads of interesting stuff coming up, a lot of uh, interesting bits coming up around Christmas time. And I'm sure you're going to be growing the team, like continuing to do so. So um, for anyone interested in following the Nosso journey, like where's best to follow you, like the company on socials? Um, so Instagram is probably where we are most active. Um, you'll see a lot of the team popping up in like educational videos there. And our handle is uh, with Nosso. So it's at with Nosso. Um TikTok, um, we're, we're, we're experimenting there as well. Um, I'd say, um, yeah, out with Nosso as well, or follow myself there because we, we try to do some things from my account as well, which is Yousef TD Nosso. Um, and then the final thing is, you know, I'm, I'm pretty like, um, I, you know, I'm not one of those people that doesn't like e- receiving emails. So if you ever just want to chat, if you're interested in hearing about kind of any roles we've got or, um, or what we're working on, then just drop me an email and it's first name at withnosso.com. Perfect. Nice. Well, you said thank you again for coming on the show. Like I've learned loads and uh, love watching like what Nosso's up to and following that journey. So thank you. No, thank you, Craig. It's been yeah, really good to, to come on and chat. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.